This morning as we come to the word of the Lord, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 to 18, if you would turn there in your Bibles. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find Hebrews 10 and verse 11 and forward, beginning on page 1203, page 1203. Well, our text today is one that demands some strong superlatives. Superlatives are words that convey a comparison. For instance, words like more or best or highest. We think of, uh, we can, my wife and I always have this little interaction with one another. She says, I tell her I love her. She says, I love you more. And I say, you can't because I love you most. Well, that same kind of interaction is what a superlative reflects. Good, better, and best, and so forth. The, the higher or the highest. And there is this process of increasing attention and impact with each word. Other words like maximum or amazing or majestic all fit into this category of superlatives and superlative vocabulary, which is exactly what our text conveys. Now, I can't help but note that our former home had much of this type of speech and often employed many superlatives. The California dialect or vernacular was often riddled with these comparative words. Oftentimes using the word awesome. Oh, that's like so awesome. The word like often being used in those constructions in that dialect. It's like, yeah, it's like, can you believe? And it's like, I've never seen anything like it. It was like awesome. Sometimes they even combine superlatives. It's, it's like totally awesome, dude. Now, I have talked to my sons. They will sometimes bring a little of that forward, and so I attempt to try and correct that vernacular a little bit and tease them about the lingo they've got going on. I mean, if we can't have a little fun with one another over our idiosyncrasies, then we might be like taking ourselves a little too seriously. Well, our message today also has some powerful superlatives in it. Personally, I don't like to use the word awesome in daily conversation. I feel like this superlative should be reserved for the only one who is truly awesome, and that is God himself. Well, today we use that superlative in its most appropriate and profound sense as we come to our title. I've titled our message for our service today, The Totally Awesome Action. The Totally Awesome Action. Our text is Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. Let me read it for us before we dive in to discuss the particulars. Follow along, if you would, please, in your Bibles. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The totally awesome action. Today we come to our sixth and final contrast. In some ways, our text today is the climax of the book of Hebrews. Oh, there is still much incredible material left ahead for us. But this is the pinnacle of our author's argument. He spent the better part of six chapters presenting the superiority of Christ through these previous five contrasts. The contrast of the ministries, that is, the heavenly high priestly ministry of Christ versus the earthly high priestly ministry of the Levitical priesthood. And no comparison in how superior Christ's heavenly ministry is. The contrast of the covenants, that is, the superiority of the new covenant whereby Christ puts his spirit within us. That bilateral covenant being compared to it, the Mosaic, the old covenant, which required the sacrifices. There was the contrast of tabernacles, the the heavenly tabernacle that Christ dwells in now versus the earthly tabernacle in the wilderness. The fourth was the contrast of blood. Jesus' own precious blood shed versus the blood of the animals that was shed. Then the last few weeks, the contrast of sacrifices. This was similar to the contrast of blood, only it was more broad and inclusive. This contrast of the sacrifices was by far the most compelling yet. The old covenant sacrifices were but shadows. They had no cleansing effect, not spiritually, not even mentally, for there was a continual recognition of sin. There was a continual building of that guilt upon the conscience. And the law itself was a continual reminder of sin. But Jesus' sacrifice was completely opposite, completely contrasting to that. And at this point, the discussion of the old versus the new is effectively over. No one could hold to a system which offered sacrifices with no ability to cleanse. Only Jesus provided what was needful. Only in his death did he fulfill the will of the Father. Only in his body did he bear our sins. So now we come to our sixth and final contrast, the climax of contrast, and it is the contrast of the removal of sins. The contrast of the removal of sins. This section is a bit like our our fifth contrast in its structure. In our first message on the contrast of the sacrifices, we recognized that there was a major distinction in the presentations. And that contrast being that there was a very negative element with which we began that contrast, and then we turned to a very positive component. That we referred to that negative as the bad news. And then we moved forward to the good news that came following it. Only In this comparison, the bad news is very much shorter. In fact, it's only one verse, and it is our first point. And that first point I have titled, An Awful Awareness. An Awful Awareness. Verse 11 reveals what can only be considered as bad news. We notice to begin with that we're taken to the broad sacrificial perspective of the general priesthood. Namely, every priest, as verse 11 begins. 
The author broadens our perspective to discuss the components of the entire sacrificial system. This is not just the Day of Atonement any longer, which we have been discussing through the last few sections. Now we're looking at the entire Old Covenant and its sacrificial system. So verse 11 broadens our perspective. But it also shows us something about the high priest's ministry. Namely, that he is standing. This shows us that the work of the high priest is ongoing. He had to be standing to do his work. He could not do it sitting as many of us do today in a desk job. There is never an end to the ongoing offerings which the priest must perform. And that's what's being indicated for us when it says that he was standing. Standing daily further conveys that event that there was never a Sabbath day's rest for the priests. Their work goes on seven days a week. Never is there a labor day where everything is going to shut down and they're going to get a, a, a break because the temple is ongoing each and every day and the sacrifices never stop. It's a continual and ongoing process of killing these animals. This position of standing also reveals what will be a significant contrast. And we'll see that shortly, so make note of it. But for now, it shows us that ongoing process. The next two phrases further describe the ideal of this continual action. Verse 11 says the priest is daily ministering. Daily ministering. Again, this is a, a continuous, ongoing process. Now, it isn't like there was one priest that worked 365 days a year. There were regiments or ranks of the Levitical priesthood, 24 of them to be precise, that the Levites were broken up into. So this further emphasizes the ongoing nature of the priest's work in this daily ministering. It's also interesting that that word ministering in verse 9 shows the priest's work was God-ordained. It was God-honoring. It was something the Lord had designed to bring honor to himself. This was not some type of self-generated action. The priest's efforts were truly an effort to exalt God. It wasn't hypocritical action or ministry. They weren't just going through the motions, but they were truly seeking to honor God in his word. We see that back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 7. Deuteronomy 18 and 7 read, Then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. So generation after generation, for thousands of years, these Levites have been standing, daily ministering, carrying forward the efforts to exalt God in their ministry. Not only was there a sanctified role in performing the ministry, there was a gravitas to those being ministered to. That is, there was a weightiness. It's a very common Hebrew word, kavid. The work which these servants of Yahweh are doing was to establish the reverence of God, as Deuteronomy 17.12 reveals. In that verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 12, it says, The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to judge that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. 
listening to God's servant was mandated and those that did not were to be put to death. Why? So that that evil would be purged from the congregation. One might be tempted to ask, well, well, what if the priest was askew? Should they still honor and obey him? Well, yes, absolutely, because if the priest was errant, then God would deal with him. Do we remember Leviticus 10 and Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, who took the strange fire, that is the incense that was not properly mixed, in before the Lord? And what did God do? He smoked them on the spot. He consumed them in fire. We might say, oh, aren't we glad that as New Testament believers and in New Testament leaders that we're not under this strict system? Well, in fact, we are under a more strict standard. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. The responsibilities of both the leader and the congregant are clearly stipulated in the New Testament. And it's not that you will immediately be put to death as would be the unyielding follower to the priest or the faithless priest. But rather... Each one will stand before God to give an account of his testimony and what he has done with these who he has ministered to and to the way that each of us as believers have received that instruction. Well, the next phrase in verse 11, which also reveals the continuity of the action, is time after time the same sacrifices this again reveals the repetition, the ad nauseum bloodbath of these sacrifices going on and on. It's a nonstop work, and that's something we can relate to, isn't it? In our modern day America, has your current or your past job ever seemed like drudgery? Like it, it goes on and on without end, and it seems like all that I do is work? Well, beloved, that's, part of that is the fulfillment of the curse on Adam in Genesis 3.18. Although part also may be uh, a little hyperbole, that is a little exaggeration in our perspective in saying that all we do is work. But for the priest, this work was a continuous, a daily process. Well, the last clause of verse 11 conveys the awful awareness. All this work, all this continual blood, all these years for the true worshiper of Yahweh only to realize that these sacrifices can never take away sins. This is a stunning realization. All these offerings, the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, a continual panoply of offerings each and every day, morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, and the continual expression of each of those five sacrifices above as applied to each one's life, not to mention the yearly feasts and sacrifices. And never was any sin taken away. Some have speculated that this phrase at the end of verse 11, which can never take away sins, 
Some have said that this means that the individual sacrifice did cover that individual sin for which they were offered. But it could never provide lasting coverage or lasting removal of sins. Well, that's a nice thought, but it's completely contrary to the text of this verse. The Greek phrase is most emphatic. It says that these sacrifices are never able in any way to remove sins. Thus, even for the sin which the sacrifice was offered, the sin was not removed. What then? All these sacrifices, all this sin, all this blood, what was the point? Thousands of years. This is indeed an awful awareness. Well, this has set up the first part of our contrast of the sacrifices. Namely, that all of these sacrifices never took away a single solitary sin. This is bad news. But this awful awareness is contrasted with the rest of this glorious section of Scripture that begins with our second point. And our second point, beginning in verse 12, is an astonishing achievement. An astonishing achievement. The horrible condition of an awful awareness explodes into an astonishing achievement. Look at verse 12 again with me. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. But he, but he, one of the glorious buts of the Bible. But he, the actual translation is, but this one. Keep this in mind because this idea will repeat in each of our verses in this point. But this one. It's important because it identifies a singularity. A specific and unique individual who is being referenced. Well, well, who is he? Or who is this one? To find out, we have to jump back to verse 10 to see the previous reference to this first person pronoun. He is Jesus Christ. This one, as the end of verse 10 tells us, as we're reminded here of his once for all, ultimately superior sacrifice of his body on the cross. The same theme blasts forward in amazing way in verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Not only is there a singularity of this one and his unique person, but we also have his unique and singular action of his one sacrifice. A once for all time sacrifice. This perfectly conveys our point of an astonishing achievement. This one sacrifice by this one Jesus Christ did once for all time provide the covering for sin. This is the climax of all redemptive history. This is the pinnacle which all the Old Testament pointed towards. This is why for thousands of years the children of God have brought sacrifices. Because all these sacrifices pointed to Christ. Pointed to the one time sacrifice by this one individual who alone could once for all atone for sin. 
And this has been the point of all these sacrifices from Moses through the Levitical system. Literally millions of animals sacrificed. But even before that, the sacrifices of Abraham, all pointing to Christ. And even before that, the sacrifices of Noah, all pointing to Christ. We can go all the way back to the sacrifice which Abel brought. All of these pointing to the one sacrifice of this one Jesus Christ. All of these are the crushing of the heel of the seed of man. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. The, the bruising or crushing of the heel was the sacrifice of Christ. It was him receiving the blow for all mankind. But it was so much more. This in his death, in his sacrifice, accomplishes the crushing of the head of Satan. This is the fulfillment of the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. All of this has pointed to Christ Man sins and falls, and God says, but I will send one. There will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the enemy, but you shall crush his head. The fulfillment of this is incredible. Well, this is not just the point of all redemptive history past. This is all of the Old Testament saints and the way in which they are saved recognizing God's promise and believing in it by honoring God's plan and his sacrifice. But this is the glory of our salvation. This is the totally awesome action. Nothing can compare to this. All redemptive history from this moment onward focuses back on this. This is my salvation. This is your salvation. Does this not make your heart burn within you? As one wonderful pastor who used to stand here would say, if this doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. My dear friend, if your pulse is not right now quickened, if you can't feel your respiration increase as a result of this amazing sacrifice, which is sufficient for once for all time by this one, then you must stop right now in your tracks. Don't go another step further. Don't read one more word in that Bible in front of you. Drop right now to your knees. Bend your head, or better yet, bow your heart. Plead with God that he would open your eyes to this truth. Cry out as a child, wailing all night and not receiving his mother's attention and nurturing. Beg as if it were your last breath before you would perish, that God would give you the breath of his spirit. For if you perish today, you will surely die apart from him and you will awaken hell. Call out to the Father to forgive you for your sins. And tell him about those sins. Say the same thing God says about them. That is that they are eternally condemning and an offense against a holy God because that is exactly what confession is. Saying the same thing as God says. Plead for the gift of repentance. For this is a gift of God's Holy Spirit. This is not a gift of man's actions. 
Only God brings true repentance. And then live in light in the truth of Jesus' sacrifice. Live in obedience to the light of Scripture. And having completed the redemption that all the world was waiting for, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here is our second contrast. The priests are continually standing in verse 11. A perfect verb back there in verse 11 for standing. Indicating that for all time past, the priests have stood. And that continued even to, even to the day of the writing of this word and beyond. For yet the temple sacrifices were ongoing as this letter was written and read by the Hebrew church in Rome. The priests still standing, but Jesus Christ is seated. His work is completed. Just as he cried out on the cross before he gave up his spirit in John 19.30 and said, It is finished. One commentator so beautifully notes, What this single sacrifice was has been said a number of times. Last of all in verse 10, where we are told that it was offered once for all. Only the single sacrifice he brought. It did the work. It is all sufficient for sins. For all sins. And everyone, past, present, and future. To this single, final, complete sacrifice. All the Jewish ritual sacrifices pointed. This is, they, they, foresh this they foreshadowed. From this they drew their virtue until the day when this one offered it on the altar of the cross. Then having offered it, this one had concluded his sacrifice, having obtained an eternal ransom, as Hebrews 9.12 confirms. He did not then cease to be our great high priest, he remains our high priest by virtue of his single sacrifice, as Hebrews 4.14 tells us. What ceased was the need of further sacrifice on his part. What remains is his high priestly intercession for us, as Hebrews 7.25 reveals. His high priestly help for us, as Hebrews 2.18 and Hebrews 4.16 proclaim which is now extended to us from his seat at the right hand of God, where he is now enthroned in perpetuity, crowned with glory and honor. End quote. Oh, my beloved brothers and sisters, what a glorious truth this is. There is nothing more precious. We indeed ought remove our sandals, for we stand on holy ground as we come to this text. It is as if God's burning bush is speaking to us right now. And the question comes, do you hear? Are you stirred? Do you recognize the glories of this amazing sacrifice? And now in verse 13, he waits. Where it says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The literal translation of the Greek of verse 13 begins, the one who from that time onward is waiting. The same one from verse 12 who offered the one sacrifice once for all time 
is now the one who is waiting. Psalm 110 comes rolling out of the end of verses 12 and into verse 13. We previously preached on this. You can go back and listen to that message. But Jesus is seated. His enemies are being placed under his beautiful feet. The head of the enemy is crushed, but the head is not removed. Do you know why you have to cut the head off a snake after you kill it? Because if you don't, it will keep biting. Well, the head of the enemy is crushed, but the victory is not yet complete. So Jesus waits for the Father to put all his enemies under his feet. The literal translation of this last phrase of verse 13 is, until his enemies might be made a footstool for his feet. The enemies themselves being the footstool which upon which our glorious seated Savior will place his feet. Well, what enemies are these, you might ask? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 answers this question in verses 24 to 26. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 24 and forward. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he is abolished, all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So many glorious things in these verses, beloved. For instance, the discussion there where it says he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Go and do a study of those words, rule and authority and power, as they occur in Ephesians and Colossians. Brilliant to recognize what's being discussed, but that for another time. But death is the last enemy. Death is that which will finally be conquered. It no longer has a sting for the believer, for we know that we are transported from this life to the next to be with Jesus. But death has not yet been conquered. And Jesus is awaiting the conquering of that final enemy until that enemy and all the others are placed under his feet. He sits awaiting this glorious consummation. Then in verse 14, it concludes our second point, an astonishing achievement, where it says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. As the literal interpretation of verses 12 and 13 began with this one, so also does verse 14 begin, for by one offering he has perfected. Well, the question becomes, beloved, who has been perfected? It's you. You are those who have been perfected. You that are believers in Christ. Why do I refer to you as those dearly beloved of the Lord so often in our weekly emails? Because that's exactly what the text says that you are. Because you are eternally perfected in the eyes of our glorious Savior. Every illustration fails, but never will I forget the illustration of my wedding day. Watching my glorious bride walk down to me. As I looked at the shimmering white glow of her dress, her beautiful face, I saw 
I saw nothing but perfection. I had nothing but love. I saw no flaw, and, and yet truly today, alongside of my flaws, she is so much more perfect than I in my wretchedness. And she is more beautiful today than even then that day. And each time I look at our wedding pictures, I see this same thing. Well, the best I can do is to present this from an earthly perspective, but this is exactly how God sees you in Jesus Christ. He sees you perfected. It is more fully translated as those who are being sanctified at the end of verse 14. Wonderfully, our footnote in the New American Standard conveys that. It's no minor detail, beloved. When we speak about sanctification, which we're talking about here at the end of verse 14, for all time, those who are being sanctified, there are two different components of sanctification we talk about. We talk about the element of our positional sanctification. This is part of verse 14, which speaks of Christ's offering, perfecting those who are sanctified. We're now seen as perfected. Even though we yet sin, even though we fall short of the glory of God every day, we are seen by the Father because of the work of the Son as perfected. This is the doctrine of imputation, whereby God sees us in the white robes of his Son because his Son has taken our sin upon himself. But in addition to that positional sanctification, there is the progressive sanctification. That work which is ongoing. But notice something critical here. And this is where our more full translation is so vital. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Being sanctified is the progressive part of our sanctification. It is ongoing. This is what Paul is addressing in Philippians 2.12, where he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we didn't understand four, verse 14, we might think that this is all up to us. We might think that as Paul says to work out our salvation, that now I've just got to do it. I've just got to step up. I've just got to be righteous. Well, that's not what we're seeing here. In fact, our progressive sanctification is not our work. This verse is telling us that it is by Christ's offering that you are being perfected as those who are being sanctified. Beloved, Christ is participating in your sanctification. Not only is he participating, he is perfecting it. All that is going on in your lives, Christ is working through you to bring you to perfection. This is an, an astonishing achievement. Oh, I know it's not easy. This life is, is no walk in the park at times. There are many difficult circumstances. Many times when we wonder how we're going to get through personal struggles, financial, physical, spiritual difficulties, the loss of loved ones close to us. But in all these, Christ is with us. Christ is using each of these. And by his one offering, he is perfecting us who are being sanctified for the believer, this is the greatest news imaginable. 
This is the totally awesome action. Pray that this will empower us to strive forward today, knowing that in everything which will come into our lives, Jesus is walking with us to sanctify us through this process. All of those offerings pointed to Christ. All of the Old Testament written for our instruction so that we would know. is pointing us to understand that it is Jesus alone who has brought salvation. That we must live in obedience. We must continue to work out our salvation. We must recognize that we fall short each day. We must daily confess those sins and live in light of the truth of his word, obeying it and reading it to know more carefully and more circumspectly where we fall short. But we must realize that Christ is working in all these things in us. It is the most glorious consideration, and it shows us the one who is truly the most awesome and amazing God.